Hey, this is Devin, and you are listening to The Wildlife, the official podcast of the nonprofit with a mission to interrupt systemic barriers of exclusion through free educational content, experiences, and funding for youth programs and professional development in alignment with anti-racist values in order to make the outdoors and science a more inclusive, safe, and accessible place. If you would like to support our organization, our show, our programs, you can do that following one of the links in the episode notes. And thank you to those who already do. Gina Spadafori, Karen Bingston, Cody Mathis, the people over at Mad Scientist Pod, Rosie Bailey, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Irvin-Brown, Kim Drillet, Karen Bergman, Zach Stednick, Vikram Baliga, Angela Seibert, Bridget Fitzgerald, Megan Gariani, and Matt Capel. Those people specifically are our, uh, our patrons over at patreon.com slash the wildlife monthly contributors, real true sustainers, friends of the show. And um, guess what? Guess what? If you sign up to do that, you get a bunch of perks with it like exclusive merch and behind-the-scenes content. We stopped numbering our episodes a while ago as we were um, working to clarify exactly where we were because we had done some revisits and some uh, some bonuses and things like that, and we wanted to get a, a, a better count. And guess what? Guess what? We did it. This right here is episode 86. Yep, 86 of the wildlife. It's also episode 86 that um, uh, we have not had Ryan Reynolds on. Yeah, which is which is a big bummer. Why Ryan Reynolds? Well, we want to talk to him about um, Wolverines, both the one played by Hugh Jackman and the real life one. You know, a little bit of a compare and contrast. So um, who knows? Maybe someday, maybe by episode 100. We're also doing things different this time around. So if you would like to get to know um, the amazing guest that we have today. I mean, you're going to get to know her just in the, in the conversation, but it's all, it's all in the context of today's episode, Dragonflies and Damselflies. If you want to get to know the person more about her work, her motivations, um, experiences, advice, those sorts of things, go, go listen to the last episode, just, just before this one, behind the sciences, behind the scenes with Dr. Jessica Elware. For me, dragonflies are a sign of the summer. Granted, they, they start to emerge in the spring and, and trickle, honestly, into the fall. But they are one of those things, one of those just like natural wild things that to me is it's just symbolic of of the summer, whether it's them ominously hovering above you while you're while you're in a boat on a lake um, just observing or, or if they're resting on a leaf in between their blue angels level skill of flight, maybe you're familiar with their, uh, their younger stage. And we'll talk about that in this episode. Maybe you've seen giant swarms of them flying over and blocking out the sky like I did back in 2009. Maybe they're symbolic for you. Maybe they represent peace transformation. Maybe, just maybe, you have a tattoo of one. Maybe, just maybe, it's accurate. Dragonflies have a place in our culture, uh, in our history, in our art, going back thousands of years and around the world. They mean so many things to different people and so many things to different organisms. 
that is why we decided to do this episode, and with none other than our esteemed guest, Dr. Jessica L. Ware. She is the Assistant Curator in Invertebrate Zoology at the American Museum of Natural History. Dr. Ware's research focuses on the evolution of behavioral and physiological adaptations in insects, with an emphasis on how these occur in Odonata, which are dragonflies and damselflies, and Dictyoptera, which are termites, cockroaches, and mantises. Her research group focuses on phylogenetics and phylogenomics and uses these tools to inform their work on reproductive, social, and flight behavior in insects. Jessica holds a bachelor's from the University of British Columbia in Canada and a PhD from Rutgers in New Brunswick. She was an NSF postdoctoral fellow at the American Natural History Museum from 2008 to 2010 before being hired at Rutgers in Newark, where she was an associate professor of evolutionary biology. She is the current president of the Worldwide Dragonfly Association and serves as an elected board member on the executive committee of the Entomological Society of America Governing Board. She was recently awarded the P-E-C-A-S-E, the P-Case Medal from the U.S. government for her work on insect evolution. She co-founded Entopoc for Ento People of Color, or Entomologists of Color, which has a three-pronged mission, recruitment, retention, and activism and advocacy. They approach recruitment through funding free memberships at entomological societies for BIPOC, students of color. Uh, They have retention initiatives such as the mentorship program that they ran for 40 students who attended the Entomological Society of America's national meeting and the upcoming journal club, which focuses on how to read and write scientific papers as well as a bunch of other stuff. Uh, She is also a contributor to 500 Queer Scientists. She spoke at the March for Science in uh, 2017. And and one of the very first places that that I heard her before deep diving into her um, amazing professional career was on um, Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. I cannot express enough just how excited I was to sit down and talk to her about uh, dragonflies and herself and everything. And in fact, so much so that, um, part of the reason that we decided to go ahead and start officially splitting the, uh, behind the sciences, uh, segment is, um, well, frankly, this one was about half the episode. <laughs> so if you came just to listen to, uh, stuff about dragonflies and damselflies, you would have had to have listened to 50% of the episode first, um, which is all good stuff, all good stuff. Seriously. If you haven't listened, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that before you listen to this. There's nothing like listening to uh, someone on a show after you feel like you've gotten a chance to know them. You know, and that's one of the things I love about podcasts. It's such an such like a an intimate format. It's it's a window. It's an invitation into um, a conversation that may have taken place in a completely different time and place. We talk about the giant dragonflies or relatives of the dragonflies from millions of years ago how many species there are in general biodiversity, the difference between dragonflies and damselflies, their whole wacky life process that most of us have never, never seen, what they eat, their extraordinary flight capabilities, odd behaviors, and the surprisingly fascinating plethora of uh, reproductive strategies that they engage in. And we play a little trivia. So, let's get to it.
this is a sort of a combination of two questions from listeners. Um, uh, how how long have dragonflies been around, and and like what was the biggest that they ever were? Oh, that's a good question. Um, because there's these 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 things that were insects um, mm -hmm. that were proto odonates, so they weren't proper modern dragonflies. Um, they called they were called griffinflies um, in families like Meganuridae. Um, mm -hmm. They lived, you know, they were, we have extensive deposits from the Carboniferous um, uh, of these 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 giant um, dragonfly-like things. Um, right. Again, they're not modern dragonflies, but you know, 350 million years or so ago, they were flying around. They had very dense wing venation, lots of dense veins in their wings. Mm -hmm. um, and their wings were really large. You know, each wing was about 37 centimeters or so. Wow. So it was a pretty pretty big sized um, organism. Um, we think that they were voracious predators. Uh, we think that they, you know, had with stiff wings were probably not very maneuverable. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps their wings were very stiff because the viscosity of, of the air was slightly different than it is now. Um, perhaps their wings were stiff because they were really just eating each other. There weren't a lot of other things flying huh. at the time. Um, it was before bats, before birds, before pterosaurs, um, before modern dragonflies. And so, uh, maybe they didn't need to be. Maybe they could be clumsy, <laughs> terrible flyers. I don't know. Um, but those were those are the the first things that we think of when we think of what, what was first kind of in the sky. Modern dragonflies are much much younger. So we um, know that order Odonata, which comprises the damselflies, Zygoptera, mm -hmm. and the dragonflies, Anisoptera. Uh, the oldest fossils that we have um, are around 250 million years old or so. Although the oldest fossil that we have, which is Triacelestidae, now maybe is debated about whether it actually is a <laughs> modern you know, Odonata or not. Um, Olivia Bethu's lab has, has done some work on that, that fossil. Um, but they're around, you know, that time period, you know, um, we're talking Triassic, I guess, probably for modern, modern dragonflies, um, with these, with these older giant things, uh, you sure. know, being about a hundred million years or so older. Hey, that's still pretty old. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, just, it's I funny mean, to it's... like say modern and it's like, you know, back in the Triassic. <laughs> but but I these, get it. These, these things were around for you know for a really long time which means that modern dragonflies have um had a lot they've had hundreds of millions of years um at least a mm -hmm. couple hundred millions of years uh to kind of perfect um certain styles of flight so they are highly maneuverable um they can have some of them have very short turning you know small turning radi radius yeah. you know ra radii they can turn on a dime you know some can fly really fast 35 miles an hour for oh, things wow. like Asianity. Um, some things migrate around the whole globe other things just travel you know around a single pond their whole life this is like a extreme heterogeneity in yeah. what yeah. dragonflies are there's only 6,000 species but those 6,000 are, are extremely heterogeneous wow wow no that's that's really interesting what what kind is it? I'm just curious now what kind is it that are, are there multiple kinds that do like those really long distance migrations or I ask in part because I have this memory. Um, I'm originally from Texas, and I remember uh, back in high school, I I kind of, it looked like a cloud might be moving over when I was like in the backyard, and I look up, and it was, my estimate is just thousands, <laughs> but it was just like, almost like the, the sun was being blocked out by insects flying over, and I'm like, what is that? And they were dragonflies, and it just blew me away. 
Yeah, there have been records. I mean, as long as there have been kind of human humans making records of things like this, sure. um, there have been notes of, you know, various cultures of, of these large swarms of dragonflies. We know one Pantella, which is the wandering glider, um, does form these large swarms and, and it migrates. There's another Annex Junius, uh, the emperor dragonfly, which also, you know, migrates often in, in large swarms. Um, I think maybe John Abbott and others have this a migratory uh, pond watch, like a dragonfly migratory group. I think maybe they say there are seven in total um, different types of migratory dragonflies. I'm not sure if I have that number exactly right, okay. but there's, it's a small number. It's like a handful that we consider to be truly quote unquote migrating um, as far as dragonflies go. Others might travel long distances in a day or over a series of days, but they're not, we don't consider them to be truly migrating. Um, but these migratory ones, like for example, some of the dragonflies that migrate in these huge swarms, they actually have been picked up on radar, you know, where you oh, can wow. see them on kind of radar um, screens, these, these huge kind of swarms of, of dragonflies. And I've had people call me, oh, I'm in Long Island and, you know, all these dragonflies are flying around, what's happening? You know, because <laughs> uh, it can be unsettling, I think, if you see them. But when what they're doing is often, in the case of Pantella, they're, you know, they fly from rainy season to rainy season. Um, and their migratory route is pretty well documented. Um, and so they're, you know, all doing the same basic imperative, mate, disperse, mate, feed, disperse, mate, feed, disperse, and just repeating that kind of over and over sure. again. So uh, this was another common, it's another combination of two questions. So what, what is the difference between dragonflies and damselflies? And someone wanted to know if damselflies were just female dragonflies. Ah, no, there are male and female damselflies and male and female dragonflies. And the order Odonata comprises all of them. And then they're split into three suborders. One are the damselflies, the other are the dragonflies. And then there's this third suborder um, called Anisozygoptera. I don't think it has a common name. Um, and it, okay. those, there's only four species in that, in that suborder and they live exclusively um, in Asia. But for the dragonflies and the damselflies, um, the main difference is a lot to do with um, their body morphology. There are other behavioral differences too, um, and, and slight, some slight differences in the way that they lay their eggs. Um, but in general, damselflies tend to have slender abdomens. They tend to hold their wings over their back when they're at rest. Um, okay. And some of them have hediolate wings, which means that their wings are kind of on a little stalk. There's like a little stalk and then the actual wing uh, starts, oh. whereas dragonflies don't have petiolate wings usually, and they usually ha hold their wings out to the side when they're at rest, and they often have very stocky or thick abdomens. This one, um, uh, Anisozygoptera, the other, the third suborder that's only found in the Himalayas and Japan and parts of China, it actually has a stocky body like a dragonfly, but mm -hmm. has petiolate wings like a damselfly. Okay. And it's it's in between. So there's Zygoptera, we think is the first to diverge. It's the earliest branching lineage um, in Odonata. And then and this is Zygoptera is sister to the dragonflies. <laughs> so your your use of often and usually tells me that that's not always the case is like the difference. Like there's probably some dragonflies that look more like damselflies and damselflies that look more like dragonflies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the slender abdomen thing is pretty commonly found across all of all of damselflies, but uh, there are some damselflies uh, that that hold their wings slightly out to the side, not completely out, but slightly out. Mm -hmm. And there are some dragonflies that hold their wings behind their back. Like there's this one 
uh, genus Cordylophia, which is uh, found only in Australia. And I can remember being in a, you know, chest deep in the water, trying to wade through to look for <laughs> dragonflies when I was there. And I saw this thing and I was like, oh, that must be a, a damselfly because its wings were right behind its back. And then when I caught it, yeah, it was Cordylophia. <laughs> so, you know, they don't always follow our rules that we have for them. How about the, um, the eyes? Because to me, like when I, I feel like usually when I see a dragonfly, they, they almost have like a, they almost look like they're on like Top Gun or something like they've got some kind of like pilot helmet. And then I see a lot of damselflies, not all of them, but, but a lot that almost have like, I don't want to say hammerhead shark head, but mm. sort of like that where like they're kind of far apart. Is that, is that a difference between the two? Well, yes, although there are dragonflies that have their wings separate, that have their eyes separated as well. So gomphids are um, a family, the clubtails. Um, okay. Styluris is this gomphid that I caught that, that Kurt Mead liked so much. <laughs> um, it's in the gomphidae uh, and their their eyes are separated. So mm. when we think of dragonflies, we often think of this one particular family called Asianidae, which are mm. these large, they're called darners is the common name. Um, and they're large and they have their eyes are huge and they meet at a seam yeah. kind of in the center of their head. And that kind of morphology, those eyes are the ones that we most commonly think of when we think of dragonflies. Yeah. And when people draw dragonflies or get a tattoo of dragonflies, almost <laughs> always that eye shape, even though, you know, there are other sure. families that don't have their eyes in that, you know, arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. It's like their whole head's an eye. Like the, it looks, it looks to me like a giant, like... I'm flying an F-15 kind of helmet. <laughs> well, they are highly visual predators. You know, this is, that's kind of their thing, I guess, mm -hmm. is, is using sight, um, you know, as voracious predators that are flying through the air. So, you know, it makes, I guess it makes sense that that's the majority of their, of their face, <laughs> of their <Yeah>. head. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll never forget the first time that I saw a, uh, a, a nymph, stage of a dragonfly and down in the water i was doing some you know the the typical kind of like scooping out the the muck in the water and then seeing what you find and and i was a lot younger and i was just <laughs> blown away and then someone was like oh that's that's just a baby dragonfly and i was like what no uh dragonflies aren't from the water what like you don't know what you're talking about um and so so I, I feel like i just have to spend some time on them because i i also understand like they spend like an extraordinary amount of time in the water, like way more than you think. And they've got some really cool stuff that they do and they have like their whole, you know, predation down in the water and stuff too. So I was wondering if we could just talk a little bit about, you know, what they look like, where they're found, how long they're there, what they're eating, how do they move and breathe, just what, what the life stage underwater is like. So it's, it's, um, they're always in freshwater, um, regardless okay. of whether they're, uh, damselflies or dragonflies. Um, but the way that they do their life underwater is slightly different for dragonflies versus damselflies. So for uh, in all uh, in general, across all of these um, these these odonates, um, they're voracious predators. So as adults and as as juvenile stages. Right. So that's that doesn't change when they're in the aquatic stage. So as nymphs, they can take small minnows, they can take tadpoles, they can eat other insects. Um, they do a great service to us because they actually, or for us, um, because they consume a lot of fly nymphs, you know, a lot of um, things that are pests to us actually have their aquatic state, their, their nymphs as, as aquatic stages in freshwater as well. Um, and there have been studies that have shown, I think Ola Fink's work showed this, that, um, that 
uh, Megaloprepis, which is a damselfly, the nymphs actually do a great job at suppressing Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, so they, hmm. they do this, this service to us by, by consuming um, the nymphs of, of things that we don't really care for, sure. um, as well as, you know, things like frog, frogs and, and fish as well also get eaten in the mix and they'll eat each other very, very quickly. Um, so that's kind of uniform. Um, and in general, they have uh, their wings as wing pads and the wing pads get thicker um, and longer as they go through a series of instar, the theories of molts um, yeah. to their larger size. They usually molt um, initially when they first hatch from the egg um, and that kind of pro nymph um, stage uh, lasts just for you know minutes, hours, uh, day and then they molt again to the first what's called the true first instar and they have a oh, series okay. of molts until the ultimate instar um, which actually will crawl up onto a bit of emergent vegetation um, and then the body um, of the adult kind of comes out of this what we call exuvia and the exuvia is left behind clinging to um, emergent vegetation so you can sometimes see the exuvia along yeah. the edge of a pond and it can tell you what lives there so those are the kind of generalities i guess across them um, but then the different there are there are a lot of differences. So um, uh, damselflies have caudal lamellae, which are these gills um, that extend out the Ooh. back of their abdomen, um, and these gills are where they have um, oxygen exchange occur. Uh, by contrast, dragonflies do this internally with internal gills, they're called rectal gills, uh, that form what's called an anal pyramid. So they have these rectal gills inside of um, uh, the, the back kind of hind end of their abdomen, and they can actually use this for jet propulsion. So they can bring water in and then shoot it out. Oh, that's uh, cool. <laughs> kind of propel the body forward, um, either to escape predation or to bring themselves closer to an area that they need to go to in a, in a rapid amount of time. Um, damselflies, they're called lamellae, uh, are really, you know, I wouldn't say that they're in the way, but they certainly can be eaten by fish and other things. So Mark McPeak and others have shown, uh, I think, that the length of the caudalamelli varies depending on whether the lakes have fish in them or if they don't have fish in them. Because um, they're just kind of floating around at the back of the, the abdomen. Yeah, I um, suppose it looks kind of like a lure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, yeah. so much of fly, tie, fly tying in, is not about dragonflies and damselflies, but there are fly ties that are that are designed to look like like Zygoptera, for sure, and some yeah. some Anisopter because those are the predominant thing that, that fish would be would be taking certain times of year, uh, which is really neat. So the way that they eat um, is they all have um, a labial mask um, that is on a hinge, um, okay. and the there's um, you know a spring mechanism, and the mouth part kind of shoots out and brings the food in towards the mouth. They're mm -hmm. usually sit and wait predators when they do this. Um, uh, you can kind of see them preparing to strike and then the strike actually happens very quickly. Um, and Sebastian Busse in, in Germany has done a lot of work trying to figure out the mechanics of how, you know, the functional mm -hmm. morphology behind this, this mechanism. Um, but what's different is that in dragonflies, um, especially the ones that are in this one particular group called the cavalabiata, they all have a spoon-like labial mass. So they're, the top part of their mouth part looks almost like a little spoon and it's cupped <laughs> like a spoon. Um, and so if you see any nymphs and then you turn them over and the mouth part looks like there's a little spoon resting against the, you know, the front part of their head or their face, um, you have a cavalabiata. That's their identifying characteristic. Whereas 
most of the other dragonflies and the, all of the damselflies have a flat labial mask um, that has, you know, um, palps and palpy and and kind of scleratized bits for clinging onto the prey and bringing it into the into the mouth cavity. Um, but but whether or not it's flat or whether or not it's spoon shaped is one of the taxonomic key you know traits that you can use to distinguish among these these different types of of organisms. Okay. Okay. Oh, and some of them, oh, there's so much, and there's more. Some, some <laughs> of them like to conceal themselves with dirt or, or debris, and others don't. Some like to cling to the underside of rocks. Um, others are in and amongst the roots of emergent vegetation. Things oh, like gompets tend to bury themselves in sand or in gravel and bits of rock. So even where, like the microhabitat of where you can find them in a stream or mm -hmm. lake um, can really vary. Watching so like watching them um, when they when they come up and like they're grasping onto a reed or something and and they start coming out like that that whole process is really interesting and um, I don't I don't know personally but from from watching it they're so wrinkly and kind of wet and glossy looking and I've and I've held them like that before where they've you know been caught in the wind and haven't been able to to get up or anything but it almost looks like they puff up and then and then normally when I find these exuviate there's like these little white tendril looking things that are coming out and i wonder like is that some sort of like i mean because it's a big thing coming out of a tiny thing like is that some sort of pumping system <laughs> like like an air mattress well that the white stringy things that you see is actually the lining of their trachea so oh. like all insects when um they molt this is for every mold but certainly this this last molt as well um their mesoderm like the lining of their gut and their their tracheal system gets ripped out right and so the mm -hmm. tracheals actually um that lining gets ripped inside out so you're seeing you're seeing like almost like pulling off a sock inside out right that's basically what you're seeing and it's still attached to <laughs> uh the to the to the the skin of the of the shed the shed nymphal skin um and then they have a new you know tracheal lining and and gut lining that that forms in the in the adult um that's already formed in the adult so um, that's that kind of those whites they almost look very they almost look shiny it looks like i know that there's an i'm not a a, a handy person when it comes to, to home repair but i have this like coming off of my furnace for example where there's a hose that has like these rings in it that kind of uh corrugated rings that support the hose that's kind of mm -hmm. what the trachea looks like if you look at it under an sem oh that makes sense um, okay and it gets ripped inside out like i said and that's what you see kind of sticking out of it but they shunt hemolymph i think a lot of how they get that first um there's like a suture on their back that cracks open um yeah. when they first start emerging um from the from the exuvia um and i think a lot of that is done by shunting hemolymph from one part of their body to oh. the Okay. Yeah. One of the things I've been noticing more in recent years up here is I feel like this is just like a, a, a not real accurate <laughs> statistic, but I feel like 90% of the time when I find them, there are zebra mussels attached to them oh, yeah. more and more and more. Um, not so much like 10 years ago, but it's almost every single time now. And, and when I find them sometimes live in like a lake, you know, they've got zebra mussels attached and it's yeah. kind of sad. But. 
It is. And there were, there's a woman who's retired now. She's um, She was at the University of Oklahoma for a long time. Uh, her name is Ola Fink. And she had a project in Michigan. I think it was in Michigan, uh, looking just at that, looking at zebra mm. mussels and how it impacted populations of maybe analagma. I forget which dragon, which damselfly she was working on. Um, but I do recall her saying that the numbers, you know, uh, definitely were varying as, as time yeah. went on in terms of the zebra mussels. We yeah. often find, uh, not so much in the exuvia, mind you, but you can get them on exuvia. We often find for adults what they are encumbered with is, are mites. So there's many oh. um, little tiny red mites or black mites um, oh. that you often will see covering sometimes the whole underside, including the genitalia. Um, wow. So you would imagine that that, you know, must have some type of impact. Um, although, you know, I, I think I, as, I, as, I, as I recall, someone, I think there is a student that's studying this, the impact of mites. Um, and I don't think people really know what the total impact is of these huge, like they're basically carrying these ectoparasites that must weigh, I mean, eventually if you have thousands of them <laughs> on your body, I mean, yeah. eventually it must impact you. I don't know how, how they do it, or if it effect, imp impacts their immunity or what have you. I, I'm, I'm so excited to see what the student's gonna find. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So one of my one of my favorite things to watch in the summer is kind of just looking up, you know, near near a body of water and and watching dragonflies hunt because mm. the way that they maneuver, like the the sort of hover like a helicopter and then take an immediate ninety degree turn and then they're swooping upside down and just doing a whole bunch of amazing things. And um, I, I hear people talk about their impact on mosquitoes, um, and I and I don't know now I know for the younger stage, I don't know so much about the adult stage. Um, I'm curious about what all they eat and, and a little bit more about those flight capabilities. Um, well, I mean, as adults, I mean, they'll eat each other. They'll eat dragonflies, they'll eat uh, damselflies, they'll eat butterflies, you know, flies, you name it. I mean, there was even have been some photos of, I think that they're confirmed of, of, of a small hummingbird being taken down. Oh, wow. I've never seen that myself, but I've just seen photos. Um, but there have, I mean, there have been a lot of people who are interested in how dragonflies hunt because um, there was a team uh, that did work showing, um, this was in the, a while ago now, um, but they showed that dragonflies actually are able, dragonflies and damselflies are able to do interception style hunting, um, huh. where, much like a lion, where if they see the, you know, a fly flying by, uh, they won't go to where the fly is now, but they'll go to where the fly will be Ooh. and then intercept them. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, I think people were interested to find that out, that they do this type of interception style fl flight, you yeah. know, to catch their prey. Um, and then the other thing about, about flies that people were interested in, I guess, was whether or not they would be a good... Um, tool, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, to use to try and uh, combat things like dengue or malaria, mm -hmm. eastern echoencephalitis, things that are vectored by mosquitoes. There have been studies, Philip Corbett, like lots of people have done work to show that they can suppress um, Anopheles or Aedes. But to date, as far as I know, it's been unsuccessful to rear dragonflies and damselflies in the number required to release them for this to be an effective control measure. Um, but mm -hmm. ideally, like they, because they, they do such a terrific job, Ola's Fink's work was done in bromeliad system and tree hole systems, which are these kind of finite systems of water that collects in the bracts of, of a leaf, you know, leave, in between the leaves of, of a plant or in 
a fallen log or something uh, that has a hole that collects water. Um, and in those finite kind of container systems, uh, you know, you could easily, you know, put five dragonflies in there and they'll eat all the flies that are in there. That's, that's relatively <laughs> easy. But doing it at a large scale, scaling it up where yeah. you have enough odonates that you could actually release them, um, you know, as, as a control measure for some of these um, flies that vector disease, I think hasn't been successfully done yet. But that would be, I mean, if, the, if someone could figure out how to do that, that would be terrific. I mean, also because there'd be more dragonflies around, which I would be all for. <laughs> as far as making more dragonflies goes, um, I, I've heard some very bizarre things about reproductive strategies amongst dragonflies and damselflies and some very varied things. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Sure. I mean, dragonflies and damselflies, I think, this is a thing. If someone mm -hmm. wants to study <laughs> Odonata, there's something for everyone, right? So people have been really interested in their flight behavior, sure, in their nymphs, sure. In their sex life, I can't tell you how many, how many aspects this touches upon, right? So people <laughs> who are interested in sexual selection are interested in their sex life. People who are interested in ecology, it impacts their evolutionary history. Like there's a lot of different types of biologists that yeah. have studied reproduction in Odinate because it's so interesting and peculiar. So What's neat about it is that like a lot of insects, um, females can store sperm. So mm -hmm. she has sperm storage organs um, like the bursa copulatrix that will allow her to keep and maintain, somehow keeping alive the sperm from multiple matings. Males um, have two sets of penises. So they have a penis mm -hmm. at, the, at the tip of their abdomen um, and then a penis at the base of their abdomen. The sperm is produced at the tip of their abdomen and it gets ejaculated into the secondary genitalia. Um, okay. And then when males want to mate with a female, they the tip of their abdomen has um, organs called claspers and they will grab the female by the back of her head. Oh um, and in some cases, a lot of damselflies, but not all, um, there's actually pits in the back of the female into which the claspers fit. And oh. in some cases, it's a lock and key mechanisms. In other mm -hmm. cases, it's not. Um, but anyways, he grabs, he clasps the female. And then in order for mating to occur, she must bring her abdomen up um, so that her genitalia is touching the secondary genitalia where the sperm now is. Um, okay. And if she does so, then mating proceeds. And sure. when they're together like that, it actually makes almost like a heart-shaped... Um, yeah, yeah, thing. I think I've seen that before. Yeah, it's it's be I mean it's it's kind of hokey, but it's beautiful, right? <laughs> it's called the copulatory wheel. Um, when that clasping take when that first clasping takes place, when the male is trying to grab onto the back of the female, mm -hmm. often his claspers um, and sometimes his feet, um, depending on how he's first trying to grab her, can damage her eyes. So often oh, when no. you catch females the back part of her eye will have the omatidia damage. And that's from this kind of jabbing, clasping action that the Jeez. male is trying to do. A lot of times the female will not bring her abdomen up um, to, to create the copulatory wheel. And uh -huh. often you'll see males, you know, grasping at females that are already in a copulatory wheel. So you'll have males on top of males trying to grasp at her head, oh, wow. um, which is very complicated. And there's interesting... I guess aspects about that in terms of um, strategies for males to try and you know maintain copulation um, to prevent you know other males from 
from mating with this with a particular female. So then the male, once they're in this copulatory wheel, the male wants to try in the idea is, is that the male should try to ensure fraternity. But if females can store sperm, she yeah. could choose which sperm she uses to fertilize her eggs. And so in an attempt to um, maintain fraternity uh, over long periods of evolutionary time, um, the secondary genitalia has these apparati that are called, um, um, well, some of them look kind of almost like a spoon. Some of them look kind of like a, like a hook. Um, they're hannules, and they can actually scrape out the previous male sperm or oh. firmly pack in to displace the previous male sperm. So in doing so, they're trying to just remove the previous male sperm from the huh. area, the, the, the oviduct, like the area down which the egg is going to pass. So that, that way it makes it more likely that she will use his sperm to fertilize her eggs. And that sperm displacement takes a long time relative to the actual ejaculation of the sperm. So often when you see males and females together, they're together for quite some time, but the majority of that time is actually sperm displacement. And a really small amount of that time is actually the ejaculation. Huh. And sometimes males will like ejaculate a little sperm, then scrape, then ejaculate a little sperm, then scrape, then ejaculate a lot of sperm. Like there's various <laughs> ways that, that it's been found to be done. And people haven't really even looked at sperm competition across all of the species that we have of Odinate. So it's still a little bit of a mystery for a lot of taxa. Yeah. And then, so I, it, it just keeps getting worse. So then um, they've it, the male scraped out the previous male sperm or displaced it in some way. He's a Japanese. He shared his genetic component of this yeah. of this recipe, um, and then some males will actually stay clasping the female and will stay attached to her until she lays her eggs. And this wow. is a strategy called mate guarding, um, contact mate guarding, um, yeah. and that's to ensure that, like, as soon as he unclasps her, another male can just clasp her and scrape out that sperm. Right. So yeah. contact mate guarding um, is one strategy to try and ensure paternity. And in some cases, like in the demoiselles, the Coleopteryx and others, which are these um, family of damselflies, um, mm -hmm. often you see them, they have green bodies, metallic green bodies and black. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the male will actually hold the female under the water until she, oh. until she lays her eggs. Um, the other, another strategy is called non-contact guarding, where the male will actually release the female, but will stay by her. And if other males come close to her, he will chase the other males away um, while wow. she's doing the egg laying, um, you know, period of time. Um, and then, of course, there's also non-contact guarding that, you know, there's no guarding that happens and yeah, they... <laughs> it's just catch can. You know, you get some, you win some, you lose some. So there's a, it's a really kind of complicated um uh, story from the moment, you know, the male tries yeah. to class the female right through until um, finally, you know, she lays her eggs. Jeez. And, and, and so just laying the eggs is just in the water? Well, there's a couple different strategies. Um, most, all dragonflies and most, um, well, I shouldn't say that. All dragonflies and some, all damselflies and some dragonflies use plant material in some form or another to mm -hmm. lay their eggs. Um, so they'll cut a little hole in plant material using their ovipositor, their egg laying apparatus, um, and then they'll put their eggs um, in this plant material. And that can be a good strategy because the eggs are somewhat concealed, but it's time consuming and makes one vulnerable to predators. 
um, yeah. while you're doing that that behavior. Yeah. Plus, you have to be similar where there's plant material, right? Whether yeah. it's rotting yeah. wood or emergent vegetation or what have you. Some dragonflies, the club tails, and then this large superfamily, the cavalaviata, by contrast, they've lost their ovipositor, so they have a mm -hmm. reduced or vestigial ovipositor. It's, it's like a series of, of um, slides that kind of interlock together and the egg goes whoof, shooting down it. <laughs> they don't have that. Instead, they squirt out their, their eggs like in a clump um, and then they tap their abdomen on the water. And in that case, the eggs really are just hitting the water and then sinking down in the water column. Um, mm -hmm. And Yoren Saleyan and others have shown that for gonfids, at least for the club tails, they have a jelly-like substance that they think weighs the eggs oh, to make okay. them sink down yeah. um, in the water column to make them less likely to be eaten by fish or sure. other insects or whatever. Um, uh, so that's that's something that's kind of neat. If you ever are in a parking lot, you know, you're at the grocery store or whatever, and you come out and you see a bunch of dragonflies flying around your car, often it's these dragonflies, these ones that just squirt out their eggs, because often they will mistake the surface, the reflection um, off of the surface of a car with the reflection off of water. And mm -hmm. they're trying to, you know, lay their eggs on the surface <laughs> of your car. But oh. really, it's a wasted output. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I feel like there's there's a lot of things like that, just with, with with how light pollution interplays with different things across the the natural world and stuff. And so, in terms of conservation, I mean, what what are we looking at with uh, dragonflies and damselflies? Are are any of them in a sharp decline, like a lot of other insects, or what are the influencing factors? Well, um, there certainly are dragonflies that are and damselflies that are in decline. Some that are listed as endangered. Mm -hmm. um, some that are vulnerable or or threatened, um, and in in many of the cases, the the problem is 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 habitat loss. So in these United States, we have um, a lot of local um, extinctions that have already taken place. They're not necessarily extinct across the entire United States, but they're locally extinct um, because of things like like habitat changes. In in the state of New Jersey, we have um, a good number of of dragonfly species here. Um, and one of them is called the petal tail dragonfly, Petalurity. Mm -hmm. um, and for the longest time, it was thought actually to be locally extinct because the last habitat, it likes these kind of spring seats in forested areas, mm -hmm. um, was built upon uh, by a condominium developer. Um, recently, I think people say that there, there are now a couple of populations that have been found elsewhere in the, in the state. Um, but this pattern happens over and over again as water um, quality goes down as you know habitat is lost um, often mm. you see you see dragonflies and damselflies um, leaving an area sometimes it's it's that they go extinct in an area but it also can be that they expand their range so there are a lot of dragonflies in response to changing climate have actually expanded their range so annex imperator is a good example of one which is a dragonfly that you used to be able to find only in parts of Northern Africa and Southern Europe. And it established, I think in the early nineties, maybe 1990 in Sweden and basically mm -hmm. has established populations in Sweden yeah. now um, in Northern, you know, in Scandinavia. Um, so dragonflies have been considered by some to be, you know, kind of what they call, uh, a colleague has paraphrased it as, I think I'm paraphrasing him, but he, he calls them climate canaries because <laughs> they are really vagile, they're really mobile. And yeah. so when the going gets good in an area, they'll go there. If the going mm -hmm. gets bad, they'll leave. Um, so we see this in the Arctic. We've done some work on dragonflies in the Arctic um, circle. And there's 
you know, kind of turnover happening already that we can see um, sure. in in which dragonflies are found there most commonly. There's a dragonfly that my postdoc Manpreet Coley works on called um, the tree line emeralds, Smatochlorus mm -hmm. alberti. It really likes lakes that have permafrost bottoms, and as permafrost melts, um, many of those lakes actually just disappear because the permafrost was the only thing that was holding the water in that <laughs> spot, right? And without the yeah. permafrost. The water just sinks into the into the ground. Um, anyways, these other somatochlora um, are now like one of the most abundant um, things that you can find in some of these Salbergi sites, which is a drag. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of variation in which dragonflies and damselflies we find yeah. and where we find them. But the problem mm -hmm. is, right, is that we don't have great baseline data on where things are. So. I yeah. think everyone should be, you know, like stop, stop what you're doing and go outside and <laughs> like, let's document which dragonflies are found where across the globe so that as these changes start happening, they'll be more noticeable once we have something to compare it to. Yeah. Yeah. Get some, get some more people out there dragonflying. Yeah. Let's, let's all go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, and are they good? Like, are they good indicators of water quality too? Um, yeah, some are. I mean, some are not very picky. <laughs> and, you know, you could have a, an old Coke can that fills with water and they probably would be fine. No, I'm joking. Coke would be too, too acidic. But there are there are some that are not picky. Um, and then there are others that are, are much more sensitive. And so a lot of the EPT monitoring does include some odonates because they can be um, good indicators of oxygen level. But um, they're much less sensitive in general. I'm just kind of painting them all with the same with the same brush, but they're much less sensitive in general than things like caddisflies, for example, Trichopter, which are which yeah. are notoriously sensitive. Um, but there it there there's a good amount of variation um, mm -hmm. amongst the six thousand species, so that can be helpful in creating these these biotic indexes, you know, of for water quality for sure. sure. So you know a lot about dragonflies and damselflies, but we want to see how much you know about dragons, particularly <laughs> pop culture dragons. So um, we're going to ask you three questions. If you can get two of three of those right, we're going to send a, uh, a prize out to one of our members. So first question is, which of these is an actual name of a species of dragon from Harry Potter? Is it Hungarian Horntail? Swedish meatball or Welsh green tooth. Which one is is a name or which one is yeah, not is a name? name. Is mm -hmm. I, I'll go with the Welsh one. Oh, it was Hungarian horntail. Oh no! Okay, sorry to the listeners already in advance. <laughs> it's sort of unfair. There, there is a Welsh green, but not a Welsh green tooth. Okay, that one needs to go to the dentist. Um, which of these is one of Daenerys Targaryen's dragons from Game of Thrones? Delorean, Cylon, or Drogon? Drogon. Drogon, yes. Which I've always loved for the creativity of, you know, swapping out the A with an O. <laughs> so it's just dragon, but spelled different. So <laughs> Greater crunch. You got to make do with your time you got. Yep. Uh, which of these recent live-action Disney remakes did not feature a dragon? Pete's Dragon, Maleficent, or Mulan? Oh no, I've seen Maleficent. Out of all of those three, I've only seen Maleficent. Um, I feel like the answer should be Mulan. Uh, I'm embarrassed, I, I don't, I haven't seen Mulan. I'm missing out on this cultural phenomenon. 
Um, <laughs> I guess I'll go with Mulan. I'm I'm so sorry in advance to the readers who are, or listeners who are not going to get a prize because of me. Oh. Maybe it's a plot twist. Um, well, thank, no, I would just say thank you for having me. And um, if you're at least if you're in the Northeast area, um, but really this is kind of true across um, the United States and Canada and parts of Mexico, dragonfly season is from April in, in some places all the way uh, to October. So it's not too late. If you haven't got your net yet, I mean, you can grab one um, and, and head on out. Even ones, my kids have had ones just from the dollar store. And, and even just when in a pinch, you can just kind of use your fingers and, and grab, a de, a grab a dam supply. So the season for collecting is upon us. And um, if at the very least you just go out to observe them, um, it would really help society at large, the Dragonfly Society at large, to kind of know what's in your backyard, um, what's in your region, what, what color were they, what were they doing, were they just perching, were they flying, what were they eating? Um, any of those information are great data to have. There you have it. Thank you so much again to our guest for today, Dr. Jessica L. Ware. Be sure to check out our episode notes for uh, links to a few different things, a few different things related to uh, Dr. Ware and a few of our um, posts from over the years related to dragonflies, as well as a link for signing up for our one-of-a-kind newsletter and links for how to support our organization. Which, speaking of, thank you again to our member supporters, our patrons over at patreon.com slash thewildlife. If you would like to become a monthly sustaining member, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month, which is like less than 25 cents an episode, usually. And if you're not able to right now, that is absolutely fine. Thank you anyway for, for listening, for sharing this episode with your friends, colleagues, family, and wherever you are listening. Please consider taking a moment to uh, leave us a rating, leave us a review, especially if you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, it, it, uh, it's, it's more impactful than you might think. It, it helps increase our visibility, which in turn grows our community, grows our listener base, and um, grows support for the nonprofit, which allows us to hopefully fulfill our mission. Thanks again. I'm Devin Boker. You've been listening to The Wildlife. Peace out, Rainbow Trout. Mm-hmm.